This talk is given by Vanessa Zvise Goddard, a writer and lay Zen teacher based in New York City. This talk, like all of Zvise's talks, is offered freely. If you'd like to make a donation, find out more about Zvise's teachings, or sign up for her newsletter, please visit her website at vanessasvisegoddard.org. Thanks for listening. May the merits of these teachings benefit all beings. This passage is from The Cloud of Unknowing. Understand this clearly. Your spiritual work is not located in any particular place. But when your mind focuses on anything, you are there in that place spiritually, as certainly as your body is located in a definite place right now. Your senses and faculties will be frustrated for lack of something to dwell on, and they will chide you for doing nothing. But never mind. Go on with this nothing, moved only by your love for God, your love for reality. Never give up, but steadfastly persevere in this nothingness, consciously longing that you may always choose to possess truth through love, whom no one can possess through knowledge. For myself, I prefer to be lost in this nowhere, wrestling with this blind nothingness, than to be like some great master traveling everywhere and enjoying the world as if I owned it. So as many of you probably know, the cloud of unknowing is that 14th century mystical text that speaks so beautifully, so eloquently about the contemplative life and about what is required to attain unity with the divine, with the ground of being. It's one of those books that I keep close and reread often. And every time I do, I find something new, which tends to be true, of course, of the great spiritual texts of the great spiritual traditions. It's probably also true of the little known texts of the lesser known spiritual traditions. And this is, this is really one of the things I love about spiritual practice. No matter how much you think you've seen or understood, there is always more. And this is truly something you can count on. There is always, always more. Which means we'll never be done, right? We'll never reach a point where we can say to ourselves, there, I'm too present now. I'm too clear. You know, I'll, I better pull back. <laughs> I mean, I hope, <laughs> I hope you don't say that to yourself. Last week, one of you suggested that I speak about the movement from the relative to the absolute, about the place where the two intersect, or to put it another way, where the two realms intersect in us. And for some reason, I immediately thought of this text, which is not Buddhist, of course, but I think speaks well to the state of mind necessary to straddle both worlds the world of form, the world of emptiness, the world of conventional truth, the world of ultimate truth, the sacred and the mundane. Most of us 
live mostly in the world of form, in the ordinary world. And we base our thoughts, our speech, our actions on what we can see and feel and touch. But ever since human beings have had consciousness, there's always been people who've been aware that there is more, that there is another realm, and that having access to it, as well as what is tangible and defined, is what gives us access to our full humanity. So that when we ignore the world of the spirit, and that's just one way to talk about it, a slightly awkward way to talk about it, but when we ignore or diminish it, when we deny it, we deny something in ourselves. We deny something which I think is not only true, but essential. So when you think of all the time and effort we're putting right now into understanding consciousness, which we don't yet understand, right? We don't understand how uh, an immaterial thought can bring about change in matter. How it can be that if just by thinking about this, I can lift this cup. We don't understand how that happens. And we assume that we human beings are the only ones who have this particular kind of consciousness. Although we were already seeing that that's not true, that there are many animals and sentient beings, trees, for example, that have a particular kind of consciousness. But perhaps this, this uh, desire to see what more is there, perhaps that is unique to humans. You know, I don't know if, if cats and dogs suffer in the way that we suffer. Not, not existentially, that is. At least that, you know, they don't look like they are. But of course, it's, it's hard to know. But if we have ever wondered, you know, why is life so difficult? And does it have to be this way? If we've wondered that, chances are that is why we're practicing. Because somewhere in us believes that there is another way. Right? And so here we are tonight, trying to see and understand and practice this different way. And different, not because it negates the ordinary world, really because it includes the more. The Cloud of Unknowing was written as a kind of manual by an anonymous writer, perhaps a monk or a nun, a priest, for one of their students. And it lays out the method to come close to and realize the nature of God, which above I call the nature of reality. And I should clarify that I don't actually think or know that all these various traditions are saying the same thing or pointing to the same place necessarily. Sometimes we speak of it that way. I'm not sure that it's entirely fair or that it's fully accurate to equate God with reality. But I'm working with words, you know, so, so bear with me. I do think that in the place of true unknowing, where there is no form, 
no tradition, no belief, no faith, no dogma, certainly. Perhaps there we can say that the particular experiences these traditions are trying to point to are similar. So when Christianity says, not this, not this, not this, as in the apophatic approach to God, which is the main approach of this text. And when Buddhism says, not this, not this, not this, I understand both of these as attempts to go beyond what words can express and our senses can grasp, to reach a place that is beyond what we can understand with the intellect. Why? So we can live more freely, more skillfully in the world of form. Because that is, after all, where it counts, ultimately. And one of you said to me recently, you know, kindness won't pay the rent. I mean, it might, <laughs> indirectly. But it is true that knowing the nature of reality won't pay your bills. It won't undo racism, violence, distrust. Or will it? A question I often ask myself is, what is the use of practice, of realization? I know why I do what I do. Of all the many paths I could have chosen, I chose to dedicate myself to the Dharma because I saw it as the most direct, most effective way to deal with the continuing conflict I see in myself and in the world. And so I ask myself, what will have the most effect? What is the most skillful way for me to bring about change? At the same time, there is practicing just for the sake of practice, right? We're not practicing for real life. We're not practicing for the performance. We're doing it. We're living as we are living. And so in that sense, we practice because we can, because it is the nature of who we are. So when we sit, Zazen, we sit as Buddhas. We don't sit in order to become Buddhas. We sit in the knowledge, in the faith, in the trust that we already are that which we seek. And in one sense, this is what the author of The Cloud is pointing to. This nothing or nowhere, which I'll come back to. And part of the challenge of spiritual practice is that we're so used to measuring everything. We measure time, we measure space, we measure age and wealth and progress. We're constantly triangulating our position within our lives. And we do this because we want to know where we stand with respect to ourselves, with respect to others. We want to know. And even though some part of us senses that this probably won't work within the spiritual path, we measure anyway. So, you know, in Zen, there is the uh, 10 outskirting pictures, which essentially provide a, a roadmap, a map, 
a very loose, very, very open-ended map of the spiritual life within Zen. And at the monastery, Zen Mountain Monastery, there is a set of these pictures hanging in the dining hall. They were drawn, their originals, drawn by Jikihara Sensei, who at the time was, when he was alive, he was a Japanese national treasure. And he gifted these uh, series of images to the monastery. And you would see that all the time. You know, people would come to the monastery for an introductory retreat, first time they're there, and they would stand in front of the pictures. And you could see them looking at each of them and reading the poems that accompany them. And then slowly moving along the path, moving from left to right along this progression, clearly thinking to themselves, okay, where am I? Where am I here? And very often, very often actually, they would keep walking all the way until they got to the eighth picture, which is the Enzo, the circle of enlightenment. And you could see it in their eyes, them thinking, I think I'm here. <laughs> Until, you know, they would see the teacher soon after, and that would be the end of that. And then Jikihara, uh, Sensei Shugen Roshi, the abbot of the monastery, tells the story that when Jikihara Sensei offered the pictures, for him it was the opposite. He said, you know, I really want my son to be a priest. He said, but you see these pictures, and he did the opposite. He, worked, he walked from right to left to the beginning of the path, and then he kept walking, you know, a few feet until there was a blank wall. And then he pointed at it and he said, my son is here. And he looked so sad when he said that. You know, if we're fortunate, sooner or later we realize that much of what truly matters in life cannot be measured. It cannot be measured objectively. Love, health, happiness, insight, understanding, you know, a general sense of well-being. Think of a day or a moment when you felt truly happy, truly contented. What were you doing? What was the source of your happiness? This is also something I think about. I think to myself, I'm here for a brief, a very brief period of time. How am I going to spend it? How am I spending it? What is occupying the accumulated hours and days and years of my life? And what is the effect of that on me, on those around me? How do I actually feel about the life I'm living? Not what I think I should feel, but what I actually feel. Many years ago, an experiment was conducted to try to measure happiness. And this was before cell phones, so the um, subjects were asked to carry a pager with them. <clears throat> they were given a clipboard. <clears throat> and <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> the pager would go off at random times during the day and they were supposed to stop what they were doing and then write down what they were doing and rate their level of happiness. And what the experimenters predicted 
was that people would feel happiest when they had free time, right? And on the weekend, when they could hang out, where they could, you know, go out hiking or whatever, the, the, the ways that we spend our free time. Because this is so often how we frame our lives, right? There's the work week and there's the weekend and we can't wait to get to the weekend. You know, we just make it through the work week so we can get to what we really want to do. And so they predicted that this would be confirmed by the experiment. Instead, what they found was very interesting. What they found was that, hands down, people said they were happiest when they were having sex, which you just have to wonder how that worked. Like, oh, hold on one second, honey, the pager just went off. I have to make a note here. You know, I mean, how did that work? But that's what they said. You know, in general, people said they were happiest during sex. After that, people reported being happiest, not during the weekend, but actually at work when they were being challenged, when they were engaged in what they were doing. So this is so interesting. There is the, the gap, as I've spoken about before, between our expectation and then there's the reality. So it turned out that people actually preferred to be working and to be engaged, as I said, as they were working, and to just be hanging out on the, in the, on the couch watching Netflix. That did not give them the satisfaction, the contentment that you, we would have expected. I've always thought that the purpose of a religious tradition is to offer us a map for living a good life, a fulfilling life. Not later, when we're reborn in a better configuration. Not when we go to heaven, but now. Now in exactly the place that we find ourselves in and exactly as the people that we are. This, to me, is what Buddhism is offering. And it's not easy, when you think about it, to find happiness in our current circumstances, with all our current flaws and limitations, with our wishes, our desire for things to be different. But I think it's even harder to keep chasing after future happiness. In fact, this is the very recipe for unhappiness that the satisfaction caused by the gap between where we are and where we want to be. We've, we've talked about this. And so I think it's a complete disservice to think of zazen as just meditation or mindfulness, as a tool to help you get to the goal of living a better life. It's a disservice to think of it as quiet time, or alone time, time to be with yourself, even though I myself have described it that way now and then. The point of zazen is not to be more calm or peaceful, to reduce your stress levels. Although if you're sitting consistently, it will most likely do all of those things. But that's not the point. The point is to get rid of all points. 
to do nothing and be nowhere. And if we can do that, then when we do need to do something and be somewhere, we'll be able to be there and do it more fully. And even though it sounds like I'm describing a causal relationship, it's not. If this, then that. That, that is one way to think about it, but it's not the only way. You know, these two circumstances co-arise, you see? They're interdependent. So that's the difference between Buddhism and positive thinking or any other practice that promises a reward. There is no reward. There is just the doing itself and the non-doing. So this is the paradox of spiritual practice. We work, and we work hard, no question about it, to get out of our own way, to let go of ourselves, so we can more fully be who we are and do what needs to be done. So we can be pleasing to God, as that story said last week, which means being pleasing to ourselves, being pleasing to others being pleasing to the world. And so that saying from the book of the 24 philosophers, God is an infinite circle whose center is everywhere and whose circumference is nowhere. We can say the same thing in Zen. The center of this moment is everywhere and its circumference is nowhere. This is what we mean when we say just sit, just walk, just eat. This is what we mean when we say just be the breath. And we say this so often and so easily, but how do you really do that? How do you get so close to the breath that it breathes itself? So it's not suisse breathing. Is not so we say practicing being the breath, is just the breath breathing itself. And in that moment, there is no suisse, there is no breath. There is nothing, there is nowhere. Nothing and nowhere that we can name. And this small shift, this nothing shift, changes everything. Do you understand? One of you was telling me about this book, Inner Gold, by Robert Johnson. And how he says that sometimes we turn to others when we cannot contain our own magnificence. I love that. We need them to hold the gold until we're able to hold it ourselves. Well, what do you think you're doing when you're sitting? Holding your own magnificence, remembering your own magnificence, being your own magnificence. How about that? You thought you were just focusing on the breath. You were just counting the breath, cultivating concentration. 
Instead, you are being magnificent. If we could truly do this, if we could sit as Buddha, live as Buddha, if we could believe and accept that we are magnificent, then there'd be no need for more. Then maybe we would see all there is to see, do all there is to do. Maybe that's what the Buddha saw when after his enlightenment he said, my liberation is unshakable. And then there's the other side. There's Shakyamuni, the person. You know, maybe every once in a while he got up in the morning and thought, I don't want to get up. I don't feel like teaching. I just want to lie here and do nothing. You know, maybe as he got older. I mean, the sutra said from the moment he started teaching, he was never alone. Can you imagine? I think about that. I think about it with fear, <laughs> with trepidation. And I think about it. So I have to imagine that sometimes he just didn't want to do it. You know, maybe he was short with his wife, with his son, his ex-wife, I guess, his son. Maybe he had bad days. You know, we don't read this in the sutras. And I've said before that I really want to write this book where I, where I write the Jataka tales and everything is not wrapped up virtuously at the end, where things don't actually work out. And the Buddha's okay with that. Maybe one day, <laughs> one day I'll get to that book. Chuck Cornfield said it well in the title of his book, After the Ecstasy, The Laundry. After a tiny or a profound realization, after a period of zazen in which you are able to forget yourself and the breath just breathes, then you get up to feed your child, to walk the dog, to file your taxes, apply for unemployment, there is no magic here. Actually, there is. The magic of our magnificence, of our loveliness, which once we accept it, then we can offer to others. That is also part of the work. There's a story of a doctor who had to operate on a woman who had a tumor in her cheek. And he was able to remove the tumor, but he also had to sever the um, nerve right at the side there of her, her face, her mouth. And so her mouth was lopsided after the operation. And he's there in the room when the woman's wife comes to see her. So she's just come out of anesthesia and they very lovingly, they very warmly hold each other, they touch each other. And the doctor is just standing back a little bit and he's wondering, you know, who are these people who are so close, so intimate? And then the woman, the patient, turns to the doctor and says, will my mouth always be like this? And he says, yes, it will, because I had to cut the nerve. And she just nods. And the wife steps forward and says, I like it. I think it's cute. 
And then the doctor says, and this is what he writes, I understood who she is. And so I lowered my gaze. Because one is not bold in the presence of a goddess. And he watches as the wife leans forward to kiss her wife's crooked mouth. And he can see how she twists her own mouth, her own lips, to accommodate to her wives, to show her that their kiss still works. For more talks, to get more information about Zvise's upcoming teachings, or to join her email list, please visit vanessazvisegoddard.org.